0: Welcome back to the Bygone Society Show. I'm Kate Magliari. Before we dive into part two of the Trunk Murderess, I wanted to express my undying gratitude to you, the listeners and members of the society. Thank you for your congratulations, feedback, and support. Without you, it would just be the Bygone Individual Show, which isn't half as fun. I took all of your suggestions to heart and decided to include a few, starting with sharing the history of the hand-picked cocktails. I've paired each episode with a complimentary cocktail that pays homage to the bygone era we flash back to every time we meet. Today, I'm sipping on The Last Word. This light and bright beverage was born during the Prohibition era, at the Detroit Athletic Club Bar. Pale in color, the citrusy drink is the perfect palate cleanser for today's unnerving subject. You can find the entire recipe and all recipes on Instagram at The Bygone Society Show. Enjoy this refreshing libation while we wait to find out who will have the last word in the case of the trunk murderess. Which leads me to another suggestion from one of our members, why the society was formed and what to expect in the future. For the past year, I've had this nugget of an idea growing in my mind, to find and share stories of old like the treasures they are. Stories help us better understand, connect, and remember. Since I was a little girl, I've had an affinity for weird and grim history. Why it happened, how it happened, who it involved, and how their lives and the time they lived in were forever changed by it. With the first handful of episodes, I'm starting close to home, which for me is Phoenix, Arizona the very place where Winnie Ruth Judd lived. I plan to expand my storytelling horizons to the broader Southwest, then nationwide, and one day, international. But until that day arrives, I hope you'll settle down with me in the Wild West. This mysterious and once lawless land has some of the strangest stories to tell, from the famous 30-second gunfight at the O.K. Corral in Tombstone to an alien abduction in 1975 near Snowflake. Like I said before, stories help us remember. But I'd also add, stories help us question the very essence of our own existence. How we got here. What we will do with the time we have, who we choose to do it with, and how our lives and the world we live in are forever changed by it. At the end of part one, Winnie Ruth Judd gave her first and only public confession about the murder of her two friends, Anne and Sammy, while awaiting her execution at the Arizona State Prison. The confession led to her lover, Jack Halloran's indictment, but as you may recall, Ruth pleaded not guilty due to self-defense. When the judge agreed with her, he indirectly nullified Jack's involvement in the murders and the cover-up. Jack was free to go, but Ruth remained under the hot spotlight of the media and the watchful eye of the state. And the state remained under the searing, hungry eyes of the entire nation. Too much was at stake to let Ruth walk now. With her death sentence overturned, Ruth was deemed, quote, mentally incompetent and became a lifetime patient of the Arizona State Asylum for the Insane Or did she Insane asylums now called mental or psychiatric hospitals were institutions set up to house people with mental disabilities It was a widely accepted and preferred form of treatment for centuries. Perhaps it was medical ignorance, fear of the unknown, or just plain old shame that drove family, friends, and physicians to lock up their loved ones. My guess? It was a good dose of all three. I want to give you a picture of what treatment at state hospitals was like back then. At its best, it could be described as thorny. At its worst, downright barbaric. The economic crisis of the 1930s slashed budgets, and World War II made finding personnel a challenge. While money and staff dwindled, the patient population grew steadily at the Arizona State Asylum for the Insane. From 1922 to 1942, its population grew from 568 patients to almost a 1,000. People with epilepsy or alcoholism, orphans and the elderly, really anyone different and incapable of conformity, were considered mentally ill, incompetent, or deficient. And for it, they were admitted to the hospital forced to live out their lives ostracized from the rest of an intolerant society. The asylum was named the most overcrowded public insane asylum in the country. The lack of support and help once resulted in an outbreak of typhoid due to rotting pipes. But the most jarring historical accounts are the forms of treatment performed to heal the sick and downtrodden. In 1929, a compulsory sterilization law was enacted in Arizona. From 1932 to 1956, 30 people were sterilized, 20 of whom were women. These 30 individuals were chosen based on the idea that they were, quote, "...afflicted with hereditary forms of insanity." idiocy, imbecility, feeble-mindedness, or epilepsy, and by the laws of heredity, is the probable potential parent of socially inadequate offspring likewise afflicted. Unquote. It was during this time, at this very hospital, that Ruth was admitted on April 24, 1933. Pictures and historical accounts show Ruth pushing her way through a mob of people to get to the main entrance doors. Before she entered the foyer, Ruth glared over her shoulder and spewed, I never saw such a bunch of morbids. The one luxury the state did afford Ruth was the company of her black cat, Egypt. Ruth's mother, Carrie, was also admitted for being elderly and having chronic myocarditis, an inflammatory disease of the heart caused by a viral infection, which she eventually died from in 1953 at the age of 87. Before her mother's death, Ruth was allowed to visit her mother in the hospital, but not without the occasional withholding of said visitations to punish Ruth from time to time. As time dragged on, Ruth found herself with idle hands and really wanted to give back to her fellow patients. She decided to open her own beauty salon where she cut and fashioned patients' hair into trendy updos. Eventually, Ruth was sought out by other members of society who did not reside at the hospital to cut up their hair. Just as she was admired by other inmates and the female warden at the Arizona State Prison, Ruth was looked up to and appreciated by many of the nurses and her fellow patients at the hospital. One nurse, whose name Ruth would take to her grave, became a very dear friend and the secret weapon to her six escape attempts over the course of two decades. This nurse gave Ruth a key to unlock the doors of the asylum and leave. During one of her attempts, Ruth walked 200 miles along the old Southern Pacific Railroad to Yuma, Arizona, a small city nestled on the border of Mexico and California, The trek would have taken her almost three days with no stops and no rests. Every escape ended a few hours or days until Ruth's recapture. Except her sixth and final attempt. On October 8, 1962, Ruth snuck out one last time into the cactus-studded desert and disappeared to San Francisco for seven years. She assumed the name Marion Lane and worked as a live-in maid for a wealthy family in the Bay. They were faithful and kind to their very favorite nanny. In some accounts, Marion is described as a beloved family member. Even when her true identity was revealed and Ruth was eventually extradited back to Arizona in 1969, the family stood by her side, promising her a home and work upon her return. Back in Arizona, Ruth demanded a sanity hearing, and her case was successfully reopened in 1969. She was pardoned by the State Parole Board during her second hearing. But Ruth's long-awaited freedom wouldn't come just yet. While Ruth waited in the state prison where she first stayed nearly 40 years earlier, Governor Jack Williams took 244 days to sign her official parole. On December 2nd, 1971, at 2 a.m. in the morning, after two years of legal wrangling, Winnie Ruth Judd was released under the guise of night. Like a fugitive or an old skeleton in a worn-down closet, Arizona finally let go of the trunk murderess. Finally, a free woman returned to Northern California as Marion Lane, where she worked for the same family a few years prior while she was at large. Marion also went back to school and graduated from the Oakland College of Medical Assistance at age 60. She was offered a job, but turned it down in order to stay with the family who stood by her side. Ruth outlived everyone involved in her trial and died in October 1998 at the old age of 93. At the time of her death, she was known to have only a few keepsakes in her possession. Her most prized? A simple key given to Ruth by a very dear friend, whose name she took with her to her grave. Thank you for joining The Bygone Society Show, where we chronicle the strange and forgotten corners of history. You can learn more about The Society and each episode by following us on Instagram at The Bygone Society Show, and by heading over to thebygonesocietyshow.com. Have a story idea? Send me an email at show at gmail.com. That's Show at gmail.com. From your gracious and ghoulish host, thank you for listening.